MSW Media. What has former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen been through? What has he seen? What does he know? Welcome to a very special episode of On Topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend, Patty Vasquez, the host of the Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. And before I go on, I want to thank the people who've supported this podcast for so long. James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Angela Jackson, Ari Lamstein, Dan Maruska, Joe Targonsky, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. And I want to thank all of you uh, for coming back to the podcast. We did have a bit of a hiatus. Uh, in the meantime, I actually got married. I moved uh, back to my uh, the town I grew up in. I bought a home. Uh, so I've got a wife, a stepdaughter, and a new house. There's a lot going on for me. <laughs> so obviously, Patty, a lot has changed in my life. Uh, has anything changed in your life recently? I have missed you guys so much. And first of all, let me just say on behalf of my family, I know a lot of listeners out there, I know they've congratulated you, but I'm so excited for you and your new adventure and to your lovely bride. So congratulations. And yeah, I, by the way, I've been, I was traveling all summer. I was taking my son to look at colleges and I had to get all those trips in because I started a new show at WCPT 820 in Chicago, which is the largest progressive radio station in the country. And we've partnered with Heartland Signal. So for everyone who's like, Thinking, man, you know, the, the conservatives have a, a complete um, hold, a monopoly on the conversation out there. Please uh, support Heartland Signal, support Progressive Radio. We've got to get these conversations out there. And we are here for you to have great moments of what's going to happen next, what's going forward. So I'm on 5 to 6 p.m. Central Time uh, in Chicago. So it's WCPT820.com. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Maddie. I'll tell you, I, first of all, I love, I, you're a dear friend. I love, I not only love what you do here with me on this podcast, but the reason you're here is because I consider you a friend and I love your show. I've, I've been a guest at least, I think once or twice. And I, I've been appeared on WCBC a number of times. I think it's a, you know, radio is an important, you know, instrument and medium and vehicle in the sort of fight for our progressive values. So I, I love it. Thank uh, you. I'm so happy for you. Thank you. And so now let's get into the topic of this week. When we're thinking about, I was thinking about what kind of episode do we want to have coming back instead of all the topics that we missed over the last couple of months, Patty, I thought let's, let's do something interesting and different. And so here we got Michael Cohen coming on. Oh, I think it's going to be different. And I know that a lot of folks, you know, will, will, I don't know if they're going to be angry. Have you, what kind of reaction have you gotten from folks that, that uh, you've booked Michael Cohen for this. People seemed excited, interested. I mean, I think there's a lot of folks who are just happy the podcast is back. I, I thank you to all of you who've sent me messages who are like, when's it coming back? What's going on? And 
I appreciate that. A lot there's a lot that I've been dealing with this year in my life, and I appreciate you sticking with us. We've been doing this for a few years now. You know, this has been something is definitely a labor of love, something I do because I love our listeners and the little community we've created here. And I will say, uh, with Michael, I, I really thought hard about it because, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, I saw Michael at Meet the Press the other day, and it's all about, like, what do you know? And, who, what, you know, are you going to be a witness against this or that? And what do you know? And I, I don't think, you know, Michael's an expert on what prosecutors are going to do. I hate to break it to anybody. Okay, he doesn't know what the, the Justice Department's going to do or somebody else. But he's a really interesting person who's lived an insane life. Um, being the fixer to Donald Trump and helping him get elected in certain ways, right? Being on the inside during his presidency and then being thrown out publicly and being involved in this prosecution and in public, in court, saying I did this in his direction and for his benefit and all the allegations about him and, you know, the dossier and the Mueller report. There's just a lot this guy's been through. And he's just, I think he's going to be a fantastic person to just i think it's just going to be a ride whatever he i i I'm, I'm interested yeah. in asking him questions about his life and what he's been through I, I think he's an interesting person there's going to be a lot to discuss well and i know that i won't be able to get to it but i i you know um i'm curious to hear what he has to say and i and i know i speak on behalf of a lot of listeners that um you, you know the outrage that people have toward him he, i you know i and a lot of people like him have to understand that. Look, I think I've told you I have a, a brother-in-law who worked uh, in the White House, both first for Pence and then for uh, Trump and has a very, is very high profile. And I can't, I just can't, I, you know, never in my life. It's not even like a disagreement. I mean, fundamentally, these people have murdered hundreds of thousands, you know, with the pandemic, with everything that's going on with the Supreme Court, you know, they have unraveled so much that was, you know, now we see was so loosely woven through our country. Uh, you know, they, they unleashed uh, so much on us that I, I, it's hard. It's going to be very hard. And, and so I appreciate a lot of folks' questions. I don't know how many I'll be able to get to, but uh, it's a lot. It's a lot. It'll be a lot to take in, I imagine. Yeah, I think so. I'll just say to everyone, look, I, I was on Michael has a podcast. I'll ask him about it. I, I appeared as a guest. I've stayed in touch with him since then. He's a salty guy. So I'll just say in advance, this may not be G rated. Okay. Like typical on topic is we're talking about nerdy legal things uh, or something like that. Right. Some, some other topic is very serious and cerebral. Uh, it may not be the case here with Michael. Uh, we're going to be, uh, there'll be some salty language. I don't know if I'll agree with everything he's going to say. Okay. I'll just say this up front about whatever. I mean, he's going to have a lot of opinions about a lot of things. But my goal here is not going to be to try to get into some debate about with him about every tit for tat about the legal things or this or that. It's really to try to give all of you a perspective on things. And one thing I want to give everyone a perspective on is I get a lot of comments like, oh, let's just throw everyone in prison and this and that, you know, take them all down. Well, Michael's gone through that. You can hear his perspective on that. Uh, You know, uh, Michael is also somebody who can help us understand the psychology of Trump. I mean, I'm interested in finding out how, how did this guy come to work for, I mean, how the heck do you get to be like, oh yeah, I'm going to become Trump's fixer. Like, how does that do? It's not like a job, you know, something put out on, on you know, uh, on indeed.com or something, right? It's, 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 it's something, I mean, how do you even get into that? I, I don't even know. Yeah. I, I'll probably be on mute just because, uh, you know, the alternative is uh, screaming. So uh, if you don't mind. Oh, that's fine. I, like I said, I, this may be a controversial guest. It's certainly not our usual. 
But I thought, the, here's somebody who I find very interesting. When I talk to him, I find him, you know, somebody who's been around the justice system. Uh, I've prosecuted defendants. I represent people also. And I can't really talk about all the details of that, that, I, you know, who are sometimes who get caught up in things in the justice department, so justice, criminal justice system. And he's speaking very publicly and being very open and raw about the experiences he had. So I think this is going to be an interesting conversation. Um, don't, don't, uh, don't listen to it in front of your kids, maybe, because I'm not going to censor Michael and his, I've heard how he talks and I've been on his podcast. So we'll, we'll just, we'll just roll with this. Um, but I, I don't think I need to tell you who he is or give us your usual bio or something like that. Uh, I think I'm just going to bring in our guest, Michael Cohen. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Well, you're very welcome. You know, honestly, it's a little different than it was about a week and a half ago when I was on home confinement. Then I actually had nothing to do. So welcoming, you know, me as a guest on your podcast, you're actually doing me a favor. And this is like really the first time I guess I'm doing somebody a favor. Well, I'll tell you, I appreciate that. And, you know, this is a kind of, I would say, a very special episode, so to speak. It says I actually uh, I got married, had my honeymoon, came back. Well, as you know, I mean, I, it's hard to hard to convince somebody to marry me, right? So uh, I, I uh, got that done. You and- said it, my, you said it, my friend, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so we're here we are, you know, and I, I, I'm thinking who would be the, the perfect person uh, when we're coming back from the honeymoon. And th- so thank you, Michael. I, I'm curious for you, just as a starting point, what is it, how has life changed for you? What has it been like now that you've been out uh, and, and a, a, a totally free man, so to speak? Well, I'm not a totally free man. You would know this, Renato, better than I. Along with my three-year sentence, Judge William H. Pauley III, in his infinite wisdom and discretion, imposed on me as well three years of supervised release. Sure. So I now am dealing with Department of Probation. How has my life changed? Well, I don't have to ask permission to go out for dinner with my wife, my children, or friends. Interestingly enough, I wasn't even allowed to go out with friends before. With, even if I asked for authorization, it was family only, which makes absolutely no sense if the whole purpose of home confinement slash furlough is to reintegrate an individual with their community and their family. Well, how do you reintegrate with your community if you're not allowed to see friends? So it didn't really make sense to me. But now, you know, I don't eat at like four o'clock. So that whole um, <laughs> that that whole ability to go out and to actually be um, along with other people as opposed to being on the early bird special um, is very, very different. And instead of having people come to my home all the time, uh, now it's nice to be able not to be the guy cooking, uh, right, and serving and cleaning up. Uh, Now we just uh, go to our favorite restaurants. And I will tell you the reception that I've gotten, we went for Thanksgiving to the Polo Bar. That's always absolutely spectacular. Um, I hadn't seen some of the folks there in three years, not just because I was away uh, at Otisville and on home confinement, but because of the pandemic. And then, you know, obviously our favorite staple, you know, the Bill Bouquets and then the Lagaloos and everything that's kind of in our area. Plus, you know, um, we've been going also over to this new place that's all the way downtown um, on the FDR called Casa Cipriani. 
And that's, you know, that's part of the Giuseppe Cipriani, Cipriani food chain. And the food is just spectacular. And you basically see people who you haven't seen for years. That, for me, is really the most special part of it. I get a chance to reconnect with people who I haven't seen in a long time. I've spoken to them, but now at least I get a chance to spend a little time. Yeah, it, it, I'll tell you, and this is somebody I, who I represent people who are investigated or, you know, sometimes have to, to some people actually have to serve time in, in federal prison too. And I, I have to say, sometimes people, people talk in a blase way about that sort of thing and they don't realize the impact this has in your life, right? Like just that you, I'm, I'm sure you just don't even remember, you didn't even realize what you were missing. Yeah, it's, it's really true, but not only is it an impact on my life, it's an impact on my family's life. And that's the part that really makes me angry at the entire broken judicial system. It's why I have implored um, President Biden and Merrick Garland to actually do what was left over and the only bipartisan shit that was created by this orange-crusted, bloviated fucking asshole. The only thing is the um, earn time credit, the prison reform you know, opportunities so that people can get out of the system already. And instead, Merrick Garland has done nothing. We still have Michael Carvajal, who's the head of the Bureau of Prisons, a holdover, leftover, you know, I don't know, backwash of the Trump administration. It's wrong. And he needs to go. I personally, if I was president of the United States, coming after the debacle of the previous four years under Trump, there wouldn't be a single person, forget the loot, the joys of the world. He'd be gone. And I don't care if I'm allowed to or not. I'm telling you, you're leaving. Um, Michael Carvajal, adios, motherfucker. Have a nice day. Nobody that's left over from that Trump administration belongs in my administration because they were incompetent when, he, when they were brought into their, to their current roles. What do you think that they're going to be for the next four years? Yeah, you know, I got to say, uh, I bet... That before all of this, your view of the judicial system, criminal justice system was totally different. And I, I know a lot of my listeners, they have this view. They, they've watched a lot of Law and Order, so they think that they know what it's like. It's very different in real life. Yeah, and don't forget, I did f close to 14 months in Otisville. Now, the first time that you get there, you know, it's nerve-wracking because it's something, you know, it's almost like going to a summer camp for your first time or, um, you know, someplace different and strange. Here, I was at the satellite camp, which is really like an ugly type of a summer camp. Everything is run down and shitty, but there's no gates. There's really, there's no guards. It's not like Shawshank Redemption. However, once um, COVID hit, they closed down the camp and they brought us across the street where you have armed, where you have guards, right? Where you have um, double um, bob wired fences. Uh, you know, we were placed into solitary confinement with no movement. Um, no, nobody saw the outside for as long as you were there. And I was there for 51 days. Basically, they throw you into the cell, no change of clothes. My sec, the second time, the cell that they put me in, that was for another 15 days. My cell had a broken window, meaning it was missing a plate of glass. And all I did is ask one of the guards, can I have some plastic and some tape so that I could tape up where the hole in the window is? And they, of course, denied me. So at nighttime, when it would rain, it would rain in, 
you know, on me while I was sleeping. During the day, the room would basically fill up with gnats. It was about 105 degrees with no ventilation. The place was filthy. It was a pigsty. And this whole section that we were in, which was, um, it was building E and block A. That was the area that they brought everybody over from MDC when they closed that shithole down uh, because of guns, knives, and cell phones in there. And they put all of those inmates into EA block before we got there and they wrecked the place. They broke their sinks, the toilets. And instead of fixing it, which they never did, they decided that it's a good place to put the folks in from the satellite camp right over there. And that's where we stayed. And that's where I stayed for 51 days. So yeah, folks, those of you who are listening uh, that watch Law and Order and all of these other shows, uh, it's not it's not pretty. The picture isn't pretty. And the entire system from the Bureau of Prisons all the way down to corrections, all the way to the correctional officers, they there needs to be a major overhaul in all of prison reform. Yeah, it, it, I'll say that people think of this stuff in the abstract, like, oh, criminal justice reform. A lot of times people don't know what it means. Uh, you lived it. I think it has just it has an impact on your life. And, and in my experience, just the whole experience of like being indicted and having everybody in the world, in your case, literally everyone in the world, not like, you know, a client uh, who's, oh, you know, you're, you're working at some company. But no, you're literally a, a guy who everyone knew what it was going on in your life. You have to go through a lot of court appearances, legal fees. That whole experience puts you through the ringer in a way that I don't think people understand. Yeah, except um, you may recall this for now. My entire case, forget about all the investigation that went on, the parts that I knew about, the earlier part I had no knowledge of, the FBI raid on the hotel I was staying in, um, my home, my law office, and the safety deposit box. Forgetting about all of that, my entire case started and finished in 48 hours. We had, through my lawyer, Petrillo, we had gone to the um, Southern District of New York. Specifically, there was a guy, um, uh, well, actually, I should say several, um, Tom McKay, who was handling it. Then it got turned over to Nick Roos because McKay left my case to go prosecute Dean Skelos's case. Then he ultimately came back. But my lawyer sent to Robert Kazami on August 16th a letter saying, look, four and a half months have gone by. We have asked to come in, Queen for a day. That means just to come in and to proffer, to talk with them uh, openly and without uh, reprisal. And in fact, what they did is they turned him down each and every time, stating that we're just not ready yet. We're not ready. And so he said, okay, but by August 16th, I said, listen, I've had enough. You need to send an email to Robert Kazami and you need to turn around and to tell him we need to have a meeting because this is ridiculous. I can't go on like this, four and a half months being in limbo. Well, they call him back that night and they tell him that you have till tomorrow, Friday, August 17th, to come in and to meet with us to talk. Now, all of a sudden, it's 24 hours. So he goes, well, let me call my client and see what's going on. To which they responded, no, 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 by yourself, not with your client. Now, that, of course, should have been a red flag to me that something was amiss. But unfortunately, that's not what happened. I was so fucked up from the whole experience, from basically being, you know, 
nowhere and everywhere all at the same time. I couldn't turn on a television without seeing myself on it. I couldn't turn on a radio without hearing something being said about me, um, both accurate and false. At which point I said, well, you know, go ahead. At least it's a start. To which, and I was sitting with a buddy of mine having dinner who had just had surgery for tearing his Achilles. We get a phone call from Petrillo who turns around and says, you need to come to see me tomorrow in the office with my, with my wife, Laura. I said, why, what's up? He says, I'd rather talk about it. I said, I'd like to know now. He says, you need to come in and plead guilty on Monday or they're filing an 85-page indictment against you that's going to include your wife. Wow. That, that had to be just turn your whole world upside down. Sure, because my wife is my world and my children. And there was no way that I was going to put her you know, in jeopardy, not that she did anything. That's the whole thing. I was like, oh, you know, you're protecting your father-in-law. So my father-in-law is not like what Trump wanted or Giuliani, that fucking moron in a half. He, my father-in-law is not Russian mafia. First of all, my father-in-law is not even Russian. I mean, that's the funniest part. He's Ukrainian. So, I mean, they got it wrong from the inception. The guy was in the garment district. I mean, it's amazing. He was in the garment district. He's retired for like, you know, 13 years now. All of a sudden, he's mafia. Why? Because Rudy Giuliani says so? Because Donald the fucking jerk off Trump says it? It's not true. You know what they were going after my wife for? This is the craziest thing, that she was a co-conspirator to the hush money payments. She was depositing these $35,000 checks coming from Trump and the Trump org and so on into her account. And it was okay with the bank because they knew us. We've been banking at that bank for like 15 years. And they were now going to go after my wife, my life. As leverage, as leverage over you. Right. And yet, look at for someone like Alan Weisselberg, whose son, right, was taking money, uh, not declaring it. His other son ends up pulling off some sort of a fraud so that the Trump organization can get money because only... Jack Weisselberg's company, um, Ladder Capital, was only one of two companies to give money to the Trump organization, the other, of course, being Deutsche Bank. And yet, they're squeezing my wife? Why are they not squeezing Weisselberg? He doesn't have to come in for trial until, what is it, August to September of 2022. My entire case started and finished in 48 hours. Do you know that my lawyer didn't file a single motion? It, we literally pled guilty to a one-page information in 48 hours because they had me on the hush money payment. And so all of a sudden, what was supposed to be one count turned to three, and then they decided to separate taxes. By the way, that's another bullshit charge. The taxes, I never tax evaded. Was there a tax omission? Sure there was. And I'm suing my former accountant, Jeffrey Getzel, right now for a malpractice. Every single dollar that I earned went into Capital One Bank. All, all the money was sitting in Capital One Bank. I gave him every single bank statement. He makes a mistake. He then becomes a witness to the government. They must have cut some deal with him the same way they gave Alan Weisselberg limited immunity, the same way that they gave um, David Pecker, the same way that they gave um, Dylan Howard. They gave everybody limited um, immunity except for me. The whole case is fucked up. And that's actually the sum of... What my next book is going to be all about, which I hope to have finished, I'm about maybe 30% done so far, but I hope to have it finished by March um, 
2022, maybe April, called the Department of Injustice. And it's something I talk about on my podcast all the time. You know, And people are obviously angry, just as I am, even though it happened to me. I mean, we're doing now like 1.3 million downloads a month. Wow. That's amazing. Well, well first of all, let, okay, before we go any further, tell people what you're what, – I'd ordinarily do this at the end, but tell us that you mentioned it. What, what is your podcast and where, where can they find it? Let's, let's start there. Well, you can find it anywhere and everywhere that you, you know, search for your podcast. Uh, it's called Mea Culpa. We're doing now 1.3 million downloads a month. We're consistently on Apple Podcasts, on news, we're t- consistently like top 50 uh, wow. in all podcasts. Yeah. And um, we're one year, uh, slightly over a year old so far. And I'm really proud of it. You know, I started the podcast more than just to be able to create a microphone or a megaphone for myself, but it also helped to keep me busy. Because again, when you're on home confinement for 21 hours a day, sometimes the full 24 hours based upon the weather. But when you're there, you really have to find things to do to keep you busy. It's the same thing that you have to do when you're in prison so that you don't lose your mind. Because sitting on your ass all day long, watching Netflix and Hulu, and yeah, it's great to be able to catch up on shows you missed because you were away, but there's only so much time that you actually want to be sitting, watching, instead of keeping your brain active, keeping your body active. It's very difficult. I mean, at first, they wouldn't even let me go down to the gym, which is located in my building. I mean, it's, it was really, it, it, it was not easy. People think home confinement is easy. I don't care how big your home is. I don't care what you have in your home. After a while, your walls start closing in on you from top to bottom, from side to side. And you really feel like you're back in, you know, the federal institution that you just came out of. It's a terrible thing. Causes horrific PTSD, which I acknowledge that I have. Um, And, you know, like I said, I think the system is broken. And I think Michael Carvajal needs to go. I think Merrick Garland needs to put somebody in there that actually wants to do prison reform. If not, we're just going to have a revolving door because it's a business for them. Now, you've written a book. It's been, a, I think, a very successful book. And my recollection is that there is some dispute with BOP about, about that. Is that right? Dispute in what way? Well, did they not want – did they try to prevent you from telling your story? So I don't believe it was the BOP. I believe it was Donald and the DOJ. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what they did is they passed down uh, a little mandate to Department of Corrections. There was a woman named Enid Furbis and a guy by the name of Adam Pakula. And we get there, myself and my lawyer, and I was on furlough at the time to get an ankle monitor placed um, on my leg. And um, they give me a two-page document, which looks like it was just typed up on, on Word. So I said, is this common? Is this standard for everybody? Or am I being treated a little different? Because I looked at the first paragraph, as did my lawyer, Jeff Levine. And the first thing it says is that you're not allowed to speak to the press. You're not allowed to do any media. You're not allowed to have family or friends do any media. You're not allowed to publish a book. You're not allowed to, I mean, and I'm saying, whoa, 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 hold on a second. This is all a violation of my First Amendment constitutional right. What do you mean that I can't, um, you know, publish the book? First of all, the book, the, most of the manuscript was already with the publisher 
and it was already in the process of being, you know, of being um, published and printed. So I turned around and I, and I said, and as did my lawyer, Jeff, he said, you know, can we work on the language so that it's something we can all live with that, you know, we can all live with. And then he, they turn around and said, sure, go wait in the hallway. We're going to go call our supervisors and we're going to then, you know, um, let you know. So it should take about 30, 40 minutes. 30, 40 minutes turned to an hour. We knock on the door. My son was waiting in the car in front of 500 Pearl Street. I said to him, listen, go get yourself something to eat because it's taking a little longer than I expected. It was just supposed to be signing some documents that originally I was supposed to do it up in the Bronx like everybody else. Instead, they tell me to go to 500 Pearl. About 20 minutes later, I'm sitting, we're watching my, the, like I said, Jeff, my lawyer and I are sitting watching um, the news on the television set and three guys show up with not just handcuffs but shackles and then mr cohen stand up and face the wall i looked wow. and i said for what they said keep quiet stand up face the wall you're being remanded that's the way that they play that's fucking bill barr that's the weaponization of the justice department by donald trump and of course, I filed a notice of action um, to be taken against the United States government, Donald, DOJ, BOP, etc. Um, this is really a strange thing. You would, of course, know this, Renato. You, um, you file your notice. Government has six months in order to negotiate with you on a resolution. My resolution is over on the 15th of December. So far, we haven't heard shit from them. And I don't anticipate that we will, because that's generally their game, right? They just, they don't answer, they ignore it, whether it's a BP-8, 9, 10, it doesn't make a difference. Um, we will be filing our complaint on the 17th of December, and I'll probably accompany that um, filing with a nice little press conference right outside of 500 Pearl. I have to say that I was very surprised when I heard that they were trying to silence, like restrict your book. You know, the First Amendment. Sure, when people are, when people are are uh, you know, subject to some sort of penalty, criminal penalty, you they do have some limitations, understandable limitations that are placed on their First Amendment rights. But it was it seemed to me pretty obviously designed to muzzle you and to keep you from. Telling your story about what had happened and your uh, your I think opinions of true public concern. In other words, the public wants to know about then the president of the United States. And the idea that you'd be prevented from doing so before publishing, before speaking, uh, it pretty much runs counter to the First Amendment. I'm I'm glad your book got out there. I, by the way, before we continue, will you just mention what your book is and just you know? So you, I wanted to give you that opportunity. Yeah. So the book is called Disloyal. Uh, it was put out uh, in September of last year. Uh, we've sold um, about, I don't know, a, a lot. Uh, it was the number one New York Times bestseller. Not a bestseller, but the number one New York Times bestseller for just about a month. Um, you know, really proud of it. Um, it's gotten tremendous acclaim because it's worthy of it. Really what the book is, is a for, it's, it's just a, uh, it's almost like a roadmap to the narcissistic sociopathy of Donald and the cult of Trumpism and basically a roadmap to understanding 
Donald Trump as an individual. Yeah, that's something I got to tell you. A lot of people scratch their head like they just don't understand. Right. They don't understand why anybody would vote for this guy. They don't understand why anyone would support him. Can you can do you like you're somebody who obviously spent years of your life working for him, working with him. How can you help help people understand who are listening to this who haven't read your book? Help them understand why it is that people are so drawn to Donald Trump. No different than people were drawn to Charles Manson, um, you know, or uh, Koresh. There's something about these individuals. I guess it's their narcissism that rubs off on you. Maybe there's something, well, not maybe, at least for me, there was some aspects of my life that maybe um, I was missing and I believe that it could be fulfilled um, by being associated, you know, to Trump, by working for him, the amount of attention that you get literally, you know, especially I was at the top of the food chain there. And so um, you start to take on personality traits of Donald that you never really would have. Now, it's one thing to be tough. It's another to be mean, right? Um, and you just take it on because you're doing it in furtherance of your supreme leader. So many times, like, and I have a whole bunch of these written where he say, you know, um, file a lawsuit against this guy and be mean about it, right? Um, you know, really take him, take him, you know, take him down, you know, things like that. And so you start to act in a way that the supreme leader wants you to. And the only way that you get the notification, uh, the, you know, the pat on the back or the notice from Donald is by being cruel and immoral. If you do it, even if you get the same resolution, but you don't do it the way that he wants you to do it, it's not the victory that you want. He shines no light on you. And for some unknown reason, People want that light to be shined on them. So look at, for example, Ted Cruz. This is a guy who Donald insulted his wife. It's a guy who was responsible, and myself included, because I was involved in it, in putting out the story that his father killed JFK with the photo in the National Enquirer of his father with um, Lee Harvey Oswald. And this is a guy who's kissing Donald's ass. And you say to yourself, what the fuck? Come on. You know, what are you, what are you doing? You don't need Donald. You're a, you know, you're already a U.S. congressman. So why, why do it? Look at even Chris Christie. All of a sudden, Chris Christie got a backbone. Who knew that there was even a backbone in that body? It's the same shit. Look at, look at um, Mitch McConnell. Look at Mark Meadows. Look at, you know. Uh, look at, uh, God, how many people, Josh Hawley, um, look at um, DeSantis. You can just go on and on. Even look at Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon was a successful um, television producer. He was either involved, he was either Friends or one of the, these other big sitcoms. He was involved in it, myself included. I talk about it and just loyal. I was, for the most part, retired at the age of 39. I didn't go to work for Trump because I needed the money. I was semi-retired. I was done. Instead, 
My story's not a rags to riches story like the New York Post and other shit fucking magazines and newspapers want to put out. Mine is a riches to rags stories. I have to now, at the age of 55, I have to reinvent an entire new life for myself and my family. This isn't, this isn't what people are saying. Oh, you know, you, you were benefiting from Donald Trump. Fuck that. That's bullshit. It's the other way around. I, I represented members of the royal families years before working for Trump. I didn't, I didn't work for Donald Trump because I had to. His salary didn't mean anything to me. I had multiple businesses, including I had one of the largest transportation yellow cab companies in the city of New York. And all of a sudden now the taxi cab business, which has been around since the 30s, all of a sudden it's some sort of a bad business to be in. Why? What makes it, what makes it bad? Well, now it is because of ride sharing and the devaluation of the medallions. But what makes it, what makes it, it's not a, it's not a dirty underground bad business. What kind of bullshit is that? I had real estate. I had, I had like 190 apartments in Manhattan. I didn't, I didn't need Donald for anything. But I'll tell you what I did need him for. There was something missing in my life. What it was, I could speculate. I can, you know, come up with different reasons and so on. I'm not sure if any of them are actually true or untrue. But I did what I did. I made my mistakes. I owned my mistakes. I lost everything. Most importantly, I lost my family's happiness, their security. Donald refuses to take um, responsibility for anything. Look, I didn't have the affair with Stormy Daniels. He did. And it was before I was even working for him. So all of a sudden, I'm now responsible for his affairs with Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. I didn't even have anything to do with Karen McDougal. That was all David Pecker. I was buying from David Pecker at Trump's request. I was buying from them the life rights because David was supposed to take on the role as CEO of Time Magazine and leave National Enquirer. And allegedly he had some file, locked file cabinet, um, which had all of only Trump shit in it. And so Donald wanted to make sure that that never got released. And if it, and it, you know, while David was still there, it never would because that was their relationship. But if he was leaving, we needed to take possession of it. And in essence, we were going to have to buy it. Michael, I think that I speak for a lot of our listeners, albeit with some restraint, and hearing you talk about everyone in this circle that was emotionally manipulated and wanted to be a part of this uh, in this very cult-like atmosphere as Trump as their leader. And look, we watched him for years. Many of us, like me, never liked him. Uh, all thought it was absurd, but it was fine when it was reality television. Uh, what do we do to deprogram everyone that has fallen, not just the people who are in power or have some sort of access like Ted Cruz and Rubio and Hall, everyone that you named, but all of his followers? How do we uh, re reach their sense of empathy or logic or any of that? How do we, how do we crawl that back? I don't know. I, I, you know, I'll be honest with you, Patty. I don't know if it's even possible. You know, like, for example, today, as I was preparing to return to my home so I can do this podcast with you, I'm standing in front of my building, literally just across the street. And I hear a guy, you know, they're in a four by four, um, you know, van screaming out my name. And I couldn't see where it, where it was. First, I was listening to some to something in my ear pod, but I hear my name being called and the doorman turns around and says, you know, it's the white four by four. I said, oh, OK. So I look over and the guy screwing up my name and giving me the middle finger. I, 
So I, of course, decide that now what, what do I have to do? So I go walking over there nonchalantly. They see me walking. I take a photo of the back of their truck and I post it on Twitter, right? Let everybody know who these racist, sexist, misogynistic, xenophobic, homophobic, Islamophobic, anti-Semitic assholes are. And that to me is about the only way you got to shame people back into morality. You know, we all thought that Joe Biden, who's a very, very compassionate and, and sensitive man, right, would be able to overturn the immoral characteristics of Donald Trump and what has become of people like these two idiots in that four by four. And I'm not so sure that it's possible. I'm not, I, I can tell you it's not going to be easy, but you really, as neighbor to neighbor, you have to shame people back into morality. Look, our whole lives have been basically being shamed at some point into morality, right? Whether it's your parents teaching you, hey, you can't say that to Jim. It's not nice. You can't say this to Mary. It's not nice. You know, you can't do this to your teacher. It's not polite. That's, you know, we're, we're taught to be a certain way. Well, Donald Trump undid all of that shit. And he basically said, be the asshole that you want to be. Be the asshole that you truly are inside. Now, somewhere along the line, we have to, we have to put that shit back into the box. And how? Like I said, the only way is you have to shame them into being moral. And if a guy like these two assholes... If their boss happens to be a Michael Cohen fan and he sees his license plate or whoever it might be, maybe it's the wife is a Michael Cohen fan, which is why he hates me. What you need to do is you need to put them on trial publicly, right? That to me is about the only way that we're going to be able to put this crap back into a box. Some of this, Michael, just seems so hard to solve for me because Trump has created like this alternate factual, like this factual distortion ray, right? Where there's huge percentages of the country, including people in my own family, who believe absurd things about the world and how it is, right? Whether it's this whole like big lie that he won, but it goes beyond that. Like just their beliefs on the world are insane. And uh, when you have 30% of the country who has those beliefs or whatever it is, uh, that's a very, very hard thing to overcome and to get past. Think about it. Let's assume that it is 30% of the country. I think it's a little less. I think it's 30% of the Republican Party, and the Republican Party makes up about 40% of America, right? So nevertheless, it's still 60 million, 70 million people. 70 million people walking around there believing that Donald Trump potentially won the election, that there's some sort of space lasers owned by Jews that is starting the, you know, the West Coast fires. I mean, this is not normal shit. And somewhere along the line, Donald has shown people that conspiracy theories, you know, are reality. I mean, he's basically created a reality show out of government. What he also did, which I think is the most destructive thing that he did in his four years, he, he really showed, and now I probably got this answer right, and I need to go back to like my fourth or fifth grade teacher, you know, back in school and tell him, hey, I was right, that the three different branches of government 
are not co-equal and that they don't all have the same level of power. And at least right now, because Congress is just ceding ground to the president, for example. Yeah, what he did is he showed the country that you do not need to respect Congress, whether it's you know the House of Representatives or the Senate, that he is above all, that he can do whatever he wants. He will do anything and everything he wants via executive order. He will lie, cheat, and steal to get his way. He will continue to be completely dishonest and lie more than probably every president in the history of this country combined, and then probably by a multiple, and say it over and over and over again, which is really a playbook out of Stalin, where if you say something over and over and over again, people start to believe it as true. And that's the problem. This is what he did. He, it is a fundamental, it's just, it is damage to our democracy, to our constitution, to our way of life, to our thinking. And then you have to really ask yourself, if I can, just expand on your question, why is he doing this? You ever think to yourself, and folks who are listening, You ever think to yourself, why do you think Donald is behaving this way? It's not that he's a petulant child, even though he's a fucking jerk off and he behaves like a petulant child. That's not the end game. The end game for Donald Trump is to become your supreme leader, to become an autocrat like Vladimir Putin, which is why he refuses to ever say anything damaging to Putin. He wants to be like an Erdogan or he wants to be like Mohammed bin Salman. He truly believes that he is divine from God and that therefore he and only he and his ridiculous kids are the only ones who can actually run this country, run it successfully, and that they should be your supreme leader. It's really an amazing narcissistic, you know, sociopathy that he has to even to not just to believe this, but to try to convince the rest of the world that it's true too. You know, it's it's scary it's scary a little bit to hear you talk about that Michael. I I've long believed that Trump was trying to undermine democracy and cre- and create a sort of more authoritarian for you know government, you know, for more authoritarian power in his hands, but you know, hearing you talk about the religious aspect of it, I will tell you I have fam- people in my family who are religious who really believe that like Trump was ordained by God to be their supreme leader or whatever. Uh, and I guess it's interesting. So do you think he actually, it's like he believes his own BS. So to speak, he believes that stuff that he, that God sent him here to uh, be our autocrat. Yeah. I think that deep down inside, he believes that he is divine, but you know, over the course of time, he's not a bright guy. Despite the fact he'll tell you I have a big brain, I use the biggest words like, you know, huge, and I use quite frankly, right, or kofifi. He's really fucking dumb, to be honest. And he's dumb because, number one, he doesn't read. So it's hard to remain relevant. It's hard to remain current. It's hard to remain uh, educated if you don't continuously read. Whether it's a newspaper, a book, it doesn't matter. You got to constantly read to refresh your mind and to keep yourself up to date. He does none of that, including when he was president. 
refusing to take meetings, you had to give him three, four, five bullet points. That's about, you know, the extent that his ADD, you know, will allow him to deal with. But he heard a statement once uh, about Vladimir Putin. And it was around the time that Medvedev became president because Putin was time uh, barred, you know, by their constitution. And so, of course, we all know that Medvedev became president and Putin became the prime minister, which, of course, trumps, for lack of a better word, the president. In essence, he would remain in the same presidential office and Medvedev the following, you know, um, four years then walked away. And Putin, of course, then won the next election with like 92 percent approval rating. Um, the, the quote that I remember going around and Trump used to say it all the time, it doesn't matter who you vote for. All that matters is who's counting the vote. And it's really an interesting quote that is on his mind because that's why he constantly attacked the voting system, because he really wanted to be able to control it. And he didn't want to ever have to run again. He wanted it to be the same way that Putin does it, which is basically he took control over the country. He took control over all the businesses. He basically owns 25% of all of the business that goes on in Russia. Think about what's going on inside of Trump's head, because Trump cares about only one thing, and that's money and status, right? His money brings him status. Without that, he'd just be some, you know, overweight jerk off, you know, um, playing shitty golf. Putin has these, this 25% of every industry that's there. Trump, in his mind, is thinking 25% of Amazon, 25% of Google, 25% of Facebook, 25% of this company, of that company. <laughs> He's like, I would be the richest man in the world by a multiple. Nobody could touch me. I could do whatever I want. I would basically be the owner of the United States of America. Quite frankly, I'd be the richest guy ever in history. And that's what that's all that matters to him. You know, whether it's at your expense. At the cost of your life, do you think he cares? And the answer is an emphatic no. And that's why I get so angry when I hear all of these people who are donating their hard-earned money or the money that they receive from Social Security or COVID relief, they're donating it to this fucking grifter-in-chief and his family. It, it annoys me so much. And these people think that they're giving it to a good cause, like if they were donating it to their local church or you know, their religious institution. I've got to tell you, Michael, uh, that's something that has upset me as well, because, <laughs> you know, what I, I see is people who, frankly, are struggling to make ends meet being pestered to give money, and they're actually paying his legal bills right now. Trump's legal bills are getting paid by donations uh, from the to the RNC. Uh, it, it's really, there's a certain audacity to it, and it's hard for me to understand how people who, for, for example, are religious, People who uh, are, you know, supposedly very conservative are nonetheless behind somebody who fairly obviously, I'd say, is immoral, has done, he did immoral things while he was in office, but certainly reacted that way in his private life. And uh, I, I don't know, it, it, it goes beyond, I mean, it goes beyond that, but it's just, it's, it's, it's definitely hard to wrap your, your head around something that if you told me this five, six years ago, I wouldn't believe you. Yeah, and that's a problem. But Renato, I hate to correct you on something because it is your show. 
but I have no choice but to do it. Being unfortunately the valedictorian of Trump University, uh, I have an insight a little bit different. First of all, your comment that Trump, uh, you know, uh, that people are paying Trump's legal bills that are donating money to him. That's not accurate. The RNC is paying Trump's legal bills. Simultaneously, Trump is out there grifting money for his own PAC that he himself has full discretion over 90% on 90% of the money that gets collected. 90% he has discretion over. So all these people are doing for every dollar that you give to Donald, 90 cents of it is going into his pocket to do whatever he wants. Only 10% has to go for political purpose. Who in their right mind would give up their money to a billionaire in order to fill up his 757 with supreme fuel? Because God, rest assured, he would be using the cheapest fuel if he was paying for it himself. So I got to tell you, one thing I don't, I, I still haven't gotten my head around. Michael, you're saying, you know, Trump's not the smartest guy. He certainly wasn't very effective at getting things done as president, getting legislation passed, whatever. Yet he got himself elected president of the United States and he's developed this cult following. How is it that somebody who isn't on paper the most, you know, qualified, the most intelligent, the most educated, he's not those things. Yet, how did he how how did that happen? As I said, as a cult leader, there's things that he does that ends up drawing you in. And he's a master at that. He's a master of media manipulation. And also, in all fairness, and um, many people are already thinking it in their head as they're listening to this, the only person that Donald could have beaten was the individual that the Democrats chose to run against him. That being Hillary Clinton. She's the only one who had favorability ratings lower than Donald. And remember, it's not about, you, you're really not looking for your president to be the Rhodes Scholar, though some of them have been, right? Um, they don't have to be the valedictorian of their class. Certainly, Ronald Reagan was not. Neither was George Bush or Bush Daddy, right? Um, though I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, Bill Clinton was a Rhodes Scholar. You want somebody who you could, who you could uh, affiliate with. You want somebody who you could, you know, you could just comprehend and sort of communicate with. And that's what Donald Trump did. He figured out a way how to communicate with a large segment of the population that most whether RNC or DNC, sort of forgot about, that they became this silent majority. And Trump just jumped right in onto it. And really, a bulk of these people are these crazy Second Amendment folk that think it's okay to walk the street with an AR-15, hence, of course, what took place with Rittenhouse, or you know, the fact that Anybody should be entitled to carry, you know, a firearm. He managed to somehow communicate with these individuals on this primal level that is just so far different than anything that other politicians have ever done. And then again, because of his notoriety through things like whether it was his books, whether it was, you know, his... um 
show The Apprentice, whether it was slapping his name on all of his, you know, um, properties, whatever it might be, you know, showing up, uh, con you know, continuously in a limousine, you know, surrounded by, you know, um, multiple women, you know, this was his shtick in order he created something of himself that was really bullshit. In essence, he was really like the Wizard of Oz. He was this dumpy jerk off standing behind a, um, you know, uh, a sheet, pulling on all sorts of levers, pretending to be this big, omnipotent, powerful Oz. That's, that's what Donald Trump did. In all fairness, it's probably the best analogy. He's the Wizard of Oz. It's an interesting one. I got to say, yeah, it's interesting. A lot of business, like actual businessmen, you know, are trying to create an empire. They're usually trying to build brands that stand the test of time, right? In other words, Jeff Bezos built Amazon. It's not Bezos. And the brand is not him and everything he's doing with his girlfriend. It is Amazon, right? And whatever he's trying to build there. It's with, with, with Trump, it was all about selling himself and selling this sort of, you know, his own personal shtick. Uh, and it was like that from day one. And I think people weren't, you know, that lifetime of free free press, uh, you know, free publicity from NBC and elsewhere uh, really vaulted him up. Yeah, I got to say, I wanted to switch gears a little bit. I, I, I did watch you on Meet the Press on Sunday. I, I And I saw, you know, you've been asked, you get asked a lot of questions about your cooperation with law enforcement and things like that. I know some of our listeners have questions and uh, I'll I'll pass that to Patty in a minute. But I guess, you know, one thing that I wonder is uh, what is that? What is that like for you to you know, you've already you've been on one side of the justice system and we've talked about your opinions and all the stuff you had to deal with with that. Just all the experiences you've had. How is it like being on the other side of that? You know, it's a great question. Uh, I kind of don't even think about it at this point because. Now, some people want to turn around and say that, oh, you're a snitch, or as Donald would say, right, you're a rat. Uh, and so I'm not so sure that providing testimony, cooperating with law enforcement on a multitude of issues that threaten our democracy would put me into the category of a snitch. I got a snitch provides information, truthful or not, to um, law enforcement to benefit himself. I got no benefit out of anything here. Not a single day, not a single hour, not a single minute or a single second. They rode my ass door to door. So what benefit was there for me to cooperate? The answer is because that's my obligation as a citizen of this country. It's also because he has gone so far off the deep end that he is a clear and present danger to our democracy. And I will be off this planet in the next X number of years, but my kids won't. And God willing, my grandkids and great grandkids. America is the greatest country in the world because we have the greatest democracy in the world. And this buffoon comes along thinking that he's bigger than the Constitution. He's bigger than our democracy and that we should all bow down to the supreme leader. And anybody that you know crosses him and creates ire to him should be incarcerated, as he said I should, for life. So how does it feel to be on the other side? I don't even think about it. In that, in those terms, 
basically they're asking me questions because as a insider and somebody that was involved in so much of the man's life, they don't have access to the roadmap in order to understand things. Because one thing Donald took very well was instructions from Roy Cohn, the notorious Roy Cohn, uh, in the fact that he never had an email address. He never text message. He would have other people do that for him. And that way he's always able to, you know, um, claim that it wasn't me. And that's, that's Donald's MO. I do have to say, um, there are a group of prosecutors or individuals working with the prosecutorial team that I have, you know, now spent quite a bit of time with, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for. And then there's others like members of the Southern District, Kazami, who ended up going off, you know, to a seven-figure paying job to this uh, to this girl, what's her name, uh, Tatiana Martins, who ended up going to a big white glove firm to, you know, Jeffrey Berman, you know, I think who went off to a hedge fund. I mean, a bulk of these individuals that are taking credit for the prosecution of the biggest case in the 21st century, U.S. versus Michael Cohen, all went on to seven-figure salary jobs, all claiming that they prosecuted me. And again, and you know this better than I, because this was your world. I pled guilty to a one-page information in 48 hours. So there's no fucking mazel tov to you for the job that you did. There wasn't a single motion filed. This thing, this thing came and went in 48 hours because of the pressure that they put on me. And my sentence, again, is not a three-year sentence. In fact, it's actually like a six-year. You know, I'm, I'm curious because that's an interesting thing for me. I, I'll confess to you, Michael, I prosecuted some – Cases that I thought were high profile, they were not not as nearly as high profile as your case. Okay, that drawing the world. Oh geez, now, oh geez, now you're really buttering me up. Uh well, I just, <laughs> uh, but I have always, you know, you as a lawyer, you always listen in your bio. You know that you worked on this, you did that, you accomplished this and that. It, it, it does it. It does it bother you that there are process. It does it bother you that the prosecutors in that case are bragging about working on your and bragging, but they put on their bio, right? You know, I, I prosecuted this case. You know that sort of thing. Does it bother me? It, it bothers me as much as when Tom McKay and Nick Ruse were high-fiving each other after I pled guilty. Yeah, well, I never did that. You know, I never did that when a defendant was there. Yeah, I got to tell you, I, that's interesting. I usually actually would – that's interesting. I never I never did that in front of a defendant, and I usually would. Because you're never supposed to, especially when you know what you're doing is strong-arming strong a guy. My allocution, which was written by Nick uh, and by Tom – um, read by me and acknowledged um, with nothing more. And I say this to everybody. I've said on my own podcast. I think I even talk about it in the book. It was a hostage video. In essence, they put a gun to my wife's head. And I love this woman with all my life. I will, you know, we're already together, unlike you, who's newlywed. We're together 29 years, married 27 out of them. And I have no intention of seeing anything negative happened to her while I'm able, you know, while I'm able to prevent it, you know, and that's, and they knew my weakness. They went straight for my weakness, which is my wife and my children. And I was going to protect my wife, no matter what it meant to me. Think Donald, you think Donald would have done the same, you know, uh, if it's, Hey Donald, it's either you're going to prison or Melania. Who do you think is going to prison? <laughs> I think we know the answer to that. Yeah. I think we all do. If it's Donald or Don Jr. Donald or, or Ivanka, certainly Donald or Jared, everybody knows that answer. Donald, when it comes to 
even Eric Trump. I would I wouldn't be shocked if he would actually send a minor kid, meaning Barron, to prison before himself, because the supreme leader should never have to suffer those sort of indignations and these type of conditions. You know, it's got to be just galling to be in a situation where you've given up so much for for one man. And he basically he not only did he toss you aside, but he basically acted like he did, barely knew who you were. Uh, I had I have to say I remember when he was in a, on Air Force One, he was like, "Oh, Michael Cohen." Basically, he had nothing like he had nothing to do with you, which is absurd because I mean it's just absurd to anyone who's paying attention. But I, I I just wonder how you felt in that moment. Well, how did I feel? I was actually numb from the whole experience. That no matter what he said, it never really mattered anyway to me. And once I made up my mind that I was not going to be the villain of Donald Trump's story, I would never let history cast me as the villain um, in his story of and his dirty deeds. That's when I just turned around. I said, let's go. Ask me whatever you want. And knowing what Donald does, because because, again, being around him, as often as I was every day, 10 times a day with him in his office for over a decade, I knew exactly how he was going to play this. So what I needed to do is I needed to ensure that despite all the negative things that he was going to say about me, oh, you're a convicted liar. And every dumb fucking Republican that sat there at that House Oversight Committee that continued with that same bullshit line, right, sitting there for nine hours accepting more than half that time of these these fucking dummies, you know, just saying the same thing, you know, over and over and over again. I kept saying to myself, what do I need to do in order to ensure that the American people, including those that hate me because I'm anti, you know, Donald or that, you know, I'm telling the truth, right, which is not to Donald's benefit. What can I do to ensure that my veracity is fully understood? by the American people, by actually citizens watching, you know, which I think I heard was like almost 100 million people watched that live interview. What can I show that would prove my truthfulness, my veracity? And so there was no statement that I was going to make during those nine hours or any of the preceding seven or eight other congressional hearings behind closed doors, that I didn't have documentary evidence in order to prove the truth of the statements being made. And that's what I did. That's exactly what I did, which is how 18 investigations ultimately um, came out of that House Oversight Committee hearing. You know, I, I, I remember that hearing very well. I actually had, had uh counseled one of the members of Congress about questions that he uh, asked you that day. And I, uh, one thing that I, I wonder is, does it bother you that you're like, you paid a, pr- a pretty significant price for this. Your life's uh, been changed forever. We've talked a lot about that, but there's a lot of other people who haven't. Does that, does that bother you a little bit? Sure it does. Cause I think everybody should be held responsible for their dirty deeds and for their actions. And I should not be, obviously the only one. It doesn't make sense, right? Uh, if, you know, let's just say hypothetically, you know, um, there's a, you know, um, a bank robbery, right? And, you know, Donald's in there and Alan Weisselberg's in there and Don Jr. and Ivanka and Eric and Jared and, you know, a whole bunch of other folks. 
And I'm sitting at home waiting for everybody to come because I told them that this would be a great place to, to knock over. And I become the only one that goes to prison after they, after they go into the place. That's how I see it. And do I think it's fair? No. But then again, how many people really have the fortitude and the gumption to go up against the most powerful man in the world and one who is sick, one who has a, you know, who's just, as I said before, who is immoral, that doesn't care about the truth, that's willing to go to the depths of the dumpster in order to fuck up somebody's life because that person is telling the truth about him. Well, I did it. And yeah, it's come at a tremendous cost, not just to me, but to my family as well. And it's really the, the part about my family that keeps me motivated to ensure that they all be held responsible. And ultimately, what I really want to show is that the corruption did not stop at the front door of the Oval Office. It didn't stop at the front door of, the, of uh, Jeffrey Berman or Robert Kazami's office. It went all the way down to the prosecutors and into the hands of the judge. Because, look, the judge, um, William H. Pauley III, so he's a smart guy. You know, Duke undergrad, Duke Law School, you know, he, a, bright, a bright guy. He knew that the information that was being provided to him was a lie. And yet he went along with the entire game from the pre-sentencing officers all the way to the prosecutors and so on. This was all for their own notoriety because it was a high profile case. Each and every one couldn't wait to get in front of that fucking camera with their smiling teeth to sit there. We got him. We got the Al Capone of politics. Why? Because I paid a points star who pulled the president's pecker and he didn't want anybody to know about it so we did an nda seriously that's my crime that only i should go listen it's campaign finance violation acknowledge i'm i'm responsible for what i did but i did it as i stated the direction of and for the benefit of donald j trump how is it that i am the only one responsible how is it that as i'm talking i was i was talking chris cuomo you know released the tape um, you know, to Donald about Alan Weisselberg in terms of setting up the method to which that we're going to end up making the payments to which Dopey Donald somehow wants to pay $150,000 in cash. Now, mind you, this is with David Pecker and Karen McDougal, not Stormy. He wants to pay in cash. And then Rudy Colludi, the jerk off Giuliani, wants to turn around and say, that's not what he said. I've done thousands of transcriptions. Seriously, Rudy? I mean, honestly, people are listening for themselves. All of a sudden, it's not me saying, no, you have to pay it by check to, to, um, to David. And the whole thing is just one big giant clusterfuck. You know, the case was so big because so many people wanted Donald to suffer. And they knew that they were having a hard time getting to Donald. And so they wanted to get to anybody that they deemed close to him. And somewhere along the line, I got stuck between a tidal wave and a tsunami, and um, I just got crushed, crushed by the system. And it's not right. And they crush you in the system because they all have prosecutorial immunity. One thing I got to say is, it, it, you know, uh, there's a lot of folks who are listening to this who 
you know, I think are starting to realize that the, 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 the criminal justice system doesn't always just achieve what you think. You know, there's a lot of people who believe that, you know, what's fair and just is for Donald Trump to be behind bars and this and that. And they've really learned the hard way that that's not how things work, right? It's not just so simple as people would like to be. It may happen, may not. But it hasn't happened thus far, and that's because the system doesn't work in this way that they learned it worked on TV. And I have to say for you, I think by now you've understood the, the harsh realities, at least, you know, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to get into every uh, every point you're making one way or the other. But my point is, there's a reality to which you got left holding a bag here. You got convicted of a crime. There are other people Well, you said at the time you did it at the direction of Donald Trump. He didn't get charged. He didn't plead guilty. He's not in prison for the same thing. There is a certain this is not the only case in the criminal justice system where not everyone is held accountable. And I think it's an important lesson for people to learn. Well, I, t- I agree. And I and I totally agree. But since we're talking about Donald today, you know, yes, I got um, caught holding or I, I got incarcerated for um, holding the bag. The only problem was I was never really holding the bag. I was holding the bag at somebody else's direction and for their benefit. Right. And that's where I believe that the outrage needs to be. And I believe that um, Merrick Garland has an obligation as the head of the DOJ to look into this. Uh, I believe that President Biden and Kamala Harris, who is a former prosecutor, has an obligation to look into this. There is nothing more destructive than having a weaponized Department of Justice with a willing and complicit attorney general like that piece of shit Bill Barr. And when you have somebody who is dictatorial in nature, meaning Donald, this is a recipe for the destruction of our democracy. But, you know, one of the things, Renato, I will never do is I will never go down without the fight ever. And so even while on home confinement, even while I was in prison, you know, what you need to do is constantly to, you know, structure your life. And so, you know, I've been doing that. I mean, you know, this is not common um, for individuals who are in the system or coming out of the system. While in prison, you end up with the number one New York Times bestseller, Disloyal. When I come out of prison uh, and I'm on home confinement, um, I end up creating a top 3% podcast in Mea Culpa, working on a second book. As of tonight, we're actually releasing uh, a Michael Cohen NFT um, platform that's going to be like a merger of politics, my incarceration, along with technology and art. So, you know, I'm and then on top of that, obviously, you've read in the paper about my you know, relationship with Kanye West, you know, now Ye, uh, as he's changed his name, uh, along with doing some other work for uh, as a crisis consultant uh, to some incredibly, incredibly wealthy um, individuals. So I'm trying to rebuild my life one day at a time. And so far, you know, I've been successful in that. At least I could pay my bills. Um, but this is not regular. This is not commonplace for inmates that come out because the system really doesn't work. It does not work to rehabilitate. It does not work to educate. Um, and it certainly doesn't work 
to help find work for inmates. And I've made a pledge that I will continue to push for prison reform from top to bottom uh, till the day I die, because it needs to change. The way that we look at inmates needs to change. The way that the system works that puts people behind bars needs to change. I mean, for example, you know, I got hit with tax evasion, by the way. And, you know, I'm not going to plead my full case here because I'm, I'm going to take this to court, which I already have. Um, I've never not filed the tax return. I've actually never filed for, with, for an extension, right, until this all came about. Um, I've never not paid when Trump paid like $1,500. I paid $3 million. Even, even when we learned that there was a discrepancy, I never had a chance to speak to an IRS agent. In fact, the agent that was dealing with the IRS at the Southern District of New York threatened my counsel, uh, my, my accountant, that if they decided to file amended returns, that she was going to scrutinize my amended returns even greater and then cause more financial damage to me than what was already taking place because of the negligence and the malpractice of my, uh, you know, of my previous accountant. I mean, first time offender ever in life gets tax evasion. Do you know in the year that I, that I was charged with tax evasion, do you know how many people out of like 300 plus million tax returns that get filed annually? Do you know how many people were actually convicted of tax evasion? I think it was like 880. And I'm one of them, first time offender ever? Come on, seriously, this is where I say that Judge Pauly should have really turned around and said, okay, listen, I get it, high profile. Let's go, to, let's go into chambers and have a real conversation, folks, because that's what the system's supposed to be about. And I quote Judge Jed Rakoff, all the time who wrote an absolutely, and you, I think you know Judge Rakoff um, here at the Southern District of New York, wrote an article, I think it was in 2014, New Yorker magazine, entitled Why Innocent People Plead Guilty. And it is the greatest dissection of what's going on there at the Sovereign District of New York, where it's not about prosecution. It's all about conviction so that they can turn around and say, hey, Renato, uh, I have a 98% conviction rate. You think that you're going to be part of that 2%, then you should go for it. And then they take that 98% conviction rate. They go to firms like Lowenstein, Sandler, and Davis Polk, and Paul Weiss. You know, one asshole ends up over at Guggenheim Partners. Come on, this is not right. You can't trade my life for an extra room in your, in your New Hamptons house. This just doesn't really work. That's not American justice either. Yeah, I, I will say, you know, a couple of things. I mean, one, one thing I just say about it is, um, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's interesting. I mean, I now represent people in your situation. That's part of what I do. I do a lot of a lot of things as a lawyer, but I spend a lot of my time representing people in, in situations like yours. And part of that is the defense attorney has to be the champion and the advocate for someone in your position. I you know, I'm not going to get in between or say anything about the the performance of your attorney in this situation. I don't know enough of the facts, you know, what, what you guys were dealing with. But, you know, ultimately, the one who needs to be jumping up and down uh, on behalf of the client is the defense attorney. And it's a hard, hard job because the, the deck is stacked against you, okay? And you're fighting the Justice Department. You're fighting them 
putting a lot of pressure on a client and putting a lot of leverage against a client, it can be challenging. And I've been on the other side of it too. I understand how it works. But I really believe one thing that I will just say is pro- when I was a prosecutor, I really believed that the the, op- the the job was to be to do justice and to do the right thing, not to just you know you're trying to rack up numbers. These are you people's lives, and I think if you don't have that perspective and you're focused on um, you're focused on your just, own career, yeah, your own uh-huh. career or numbers or whatever, it's it's the wrong thing to do. I, I guess one thing I got to say, Michael, first of all, I've, I've joined, I'm enjoying this conversation. I enjoy this conversation. I should open, I want to mention to Patty, I know I always give my listeners a chance to ask some questions. Patty has collected those. I should give her an opportunity because you could tell, I'm sure anyone listening to this knows that me and you, I could talk to you about this stuff for for hours. But Patty, do you have, do we have any questions from our listeners? I do. And, and look, the, you know, we share a lot of the outrage uh, that you have, but, you know, from a different point of view as far as holding people accountable. And a listener asks, can you list off names of everyone that should be subpoenaed aside from the Trumps, Bannon, Meadows? How about his executive assistant, maybe other admins, uh, you know, maybe from afar, maybe not necessarily this, you know, things that you've observed, uh, like Mark Pauletta and the U- Ukraine memo. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so the answer to that is absolutely. Now, we already know that dozens of people have been, I think 35 subpoenas have been issued so far to date. Um, Should other people? Absolutely. Take Rona Graff, his former executive assistant. Uh, If she hasn't been subpoenaed already, absolutely. Alan Garten, general counsel to the Trump Organization, who was also um, there during my tenure. Uh, There's Matt Calamari, though I think he may have already... Um, you know, been downtown and spoken to them. And I wouldn't be shocked if he's already um, cooperating, um, you know, to save his own ass. There's many people within the Trump organization that probably should be. But now let's take it to Washington. Uh, There are people that worked along Kaylee McEnany. I think she's already been subpoenaed. Uh, All of the all of the folks that were in that general circle really need to come in and to provide documents and testimony. Now, one of the things that I know bothers not just me, but all of your listeners, um, the process is really going very slowly. And I get this all the time on my podcast, on my Twitter account, on Instagram. I get people saying, you know, when will, Do- when will Donald and crime family, you know, be indicted? Will they ever end up in prison? And so on. And I understand what these individuals want. What they want is they want to see justice. And why is it taking so long? And why did Michael, yours go so fast? And so on. Well, my response always back is that the wheels of justice turn slowly, but nevertheless, they come full circle. The question is, will Donald Trump once again avoid all of this simply because he's going to run out the clock? And with the 2022 midterms, if in fact the House, you know, turns, uh, you know, Republican, then what will happen is uh, they'll probably end up putting a quash on all of these investigations that are out there. And he will and potentially could beat the system once again. Uh, It's just not fair. Um, What else? What else can we do? You know, like I said, our system has flaws. Uh, I still think it's the best system in the world, unless you were Michael Cohen during those days. And we just have to have faith in our Justice Department and our members 
um, you know, of Congress that are really supposed to be working for us, the U.S. citizen. And if they don't, vote their asses out. It's just that simple, regardless of party affiliation. If you are, if you are doing something simply because the sitting president is a Democrat and it's not in the best interest of the country, vote that person's ass out. If you were a Donald Trump supporting putts and a half like Paul Gosar, right, and you make these sort of stupid comments, um, vote his ass out. It's that simple. You have good people that want to run. Like I saw, um, you know, what's going on in, in Georgia. Um, you know, there are going to be a lot of races coming, you know, with really competent and qualified people. And so those people that do not have your trust, that are not working for the benefit of this country, regardless of whatever political affiliation that you're associated with, vote their asses out. You know, I got to say, Michael, um, I have I found I found this entire conversation really interesting. Uh, I and I really what Michael Cohen for governor. <laughs> well, hey, hey, you know, if Dr. Oz can run for uh, Senate, you know, right. Um, I'll just I'll just say, Michael, um, I wanted when I talked to you and I invited you on, I really wanted to ask you, I, I really wanted to ask you um you know, about things that weren't just the stuff, you know, people ask, I know you get interviewed all the time. What's going to happen to Trump? What could you do? Would it be, what do you know? And I wanted it to be more than that. I know, I know I'll, I'll do, you know what I'm going to do? I know Patty's telling me she's got one more question from a listener. Uh, let's let, let me, I'll, 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 let's get to that one last question, Patty. And then I'll, I want to wrap it up because I just, uh, I, I've appreciated Michael sharing so much of his time with us. I agree. And let me apologize to listeners who had great questions. I just tried to get to some, you know, I had to, I had to, I had to pick a little bit. So somebody says, I want Michael Cohen to explain the footnote in the Mueller report stating he received a text on 1030 of 16 that the tapes of Trump wouldn't be released. Um, that was from a guy who I know who was trying to get himself uh involved into the whole thing and he stated to me that he had heard somebody in Russia um, learn that the tape that there is a tape and that they were going to do some investigatory work for him and then it ultimately turned out that there was no such tape because as I stated to Congress those tapes do not exist you know if I could just sort of expand on that you know that whole piece the Pete uh, tape stuff and the tape about Donald uh, physically assaulting Melania in one of the uh, Trump Tower elevators, they're just not true. All right. And so many people were angry at me, you know, for saying that. Uh, oh, I know that it's true. I'm telling you for a fact, I, if it was true and if those tapes existed, I would own them. And if I own them, I would have released them. But th it's not true. But then again, why is that the, you know, uh, the golden chalice? Why is that the, you know, the, um, uh, the important element? Donald Trump has committed more than enough crimes within which to be indicted and incarcerated. Why is this the most important thing for people? Why is it that, and this was a big problem during my entire case, people didn't read the Petrillo sentencing memo that laid out all of the defenses 
that I've laid out for you today, they weren't interested. All they cared about is Trump's mushroom penis and Stormy's vagina. Short of that, I couldn't get anybody, press included, to sit there and to actually read the Petrillo sentencing memo that we worked on for many, many hours that even I don't think the judge even read it, which which I truly believe. I don't even believe the judge because the prosecutors, which was so shitty, it was written so poorly. It was more like a um, it was more like a tabloid document that was just salacious in nature on every single line. It was like a, you know, it was like one of these dirty books that you, you know, that you read. I mean, it's truly incredible. Nobody. And I used to say to journalists that would call me, do you have a response to this question? I said, did you read the Petrillo sentencing memo? Oh, I skimmed it. How about fuck you? How about go back and read the sentencing memo? that we prepared. And then I'll answer your questions because don't call me unprepared. You have no idea. The answer that you're seeking is on page 14 of the sentencing memo. So go read it. And now you have my answer. Well, you think that they did? No, no, because the salacious nature of the prosecutors talking about all of the dirty shit, suffice it to say, Donald has committed so many offenses. They don't need 10. You don't need to kill 10 people to be a murderer, right? You only need one. So why is it that everything has to take the best one of the 50 different things that Trump has done improperly, find the one that's the easiest to prosecute and prosecute him for just that and that alone. So what? He doesn't get 50 years, you know? Um, you, you know, for me, when I turn around and I said that the HELOC violation, the home equity line of credit violation was not only stupid, it's illogical. The pre-sentencing, um, what do you call it? Uh, um, officer turned around and said, oh, yeah. So he turns around, you know what this clown says to me? He said, he goes, oh, so you're not accepting responsibility. We're going to have to, we're going to have to add back three base, you know, three points to it, which would have taken my potential incarceration from like 45 years to 75. And I'm like, oh, fuck it. What's the difference? I'm already going to plead guilty. What else? Do you want me to plead guilty to the Lindbergh baby kidnapping and the Lufthansa heist? Fuck it. I did that too. What else do you want? Just leave my wife and my family alone. Wow. I've got to tell you, Michael, this is probably, you know, there's always those, those old TV shows where like, you know, welcome to a very special episode of Family Ties. This has been a very special uh, episode of on topic uh it's very yeah spe- except i don't think i don't i don't think that uh what was his name in there uh, uh, uh michael not uh, brian keaton or something uh, like that uh, michael, michael keaton yeah, alex, P. alex P. Keaton. keaton alex p keaton that's right i i can assure you that alex p keaton doesn't speak like michael cohen that's for sure that was one of the most wholesome family shows ever exactly right exactly right but you know what i'm talking about this is this is bad uh, uh, an unusual, but in a good way of, of like I said, a very special episode, a very fun episode, um, because I, I think it's given people an insight into you as a person and to what you've gone through. And you know what? I, I will say, you know, we, we talked earlier about your podcast, your book. If people are interested in more of Michael Cohen, that there are really great ways to get that uh, because his podcast, I've been on it, uh, is a lot of what you're hearing here and more. 
uh, his book is similar. And, and I got to tell you, Michael, I really appreciate you being so real and bearing it all here for us, your feelings, your experiences, your life. I find it fascinating myself uh, because even though I'm involved in that system and I have had different roles in it, it's it's really it's 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 still it's so important in terms of the role it plays in people's lives and just hearing from you how your life's been shaped it, it's it, it really touches me I, I will just say I'm glad that you're ending up on your own on your on your two feet here and you've got a life that you're really looking forward to uh, together with your wife well I appreciate that I appreciate both of you thank you Renato thank you Patty for having me on uh, and, um, I hope to see you and speak with you both, um, again soon. Sounds good. Thank you, Michael. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. On Topic.